Welcome to Me and the Geek. I'm me, Joel Sharpton. You can follow me on Twitter at The Rogues Life, or you can just uh, stay subscribed right here and get a different uh, weekly geekly conversation with me and another geek for a peek into their geeky world. Uh, we started this show with some MCU episodes, special episodes about the return of Spider-Man to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's the collection of films that have a continuing storyline, starting with Iron Man and going all the way to the most recent an entry, Avengers Age of Ultron, which uh, will be in theaters this week, as a matter of fact. Um, recently, though, uh, another entry into this Marvel Cinematic Universe was the Daredevil series from Netflix, and I think it was a huge success. We talked previously with Jamie Worley on an episode about... These fingers crossed paprika burgers. Big day today. Jamie gets his exam results. I hope he's done okay. He's worked so hard. So I'm making my paprika burgers for when he gets home. They were lucky last time. I add red onion and paprika to the mince. Then I top with jalapenos. Well? Make your own burgers with our Tesco finest Aberdeen Angus beef. Food Love Stories, brought to you by Tesco. The 2003 film of Daredevil and our expectations for this series. And now that it's out there in the wild and now that uh, I've gotten a chance to see it and our buddy... um, Kyle Sweeney has also gotten a chance to see it. He and I sat down together and broke this series down. Uh, forewarned, we do have spoilers, but the first uh, four or five minutes or so, we talk our general feelings about the show. And so even if you haven't seen it all or you haven't seen any of it, we're not going to ruin anything for you here in the first few minutes. And we will give a big, fat spoiler warning before we get into spoiler territory. But then we really dive in, talking specifically about episodes, moments, some of the storyline. And then at the end, we give our conjecture for season two, which has already been announced. That's right, Netflix. And Marvel announced recently uh, that there is going to be a second season of the Daredevil series. It'll premiere sometime in 2016. Charlie Cox has even hinted that it might be right at the same time of year, so early in April uh, next year. If you are enjoying these MCU episodes, we'll have another one soon as we give you our review of Avengers Age of Ultron. And then right after that, with the uh, second season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wrapping up, we'll talk about that as well. If the MCU is not for you, don't worry. Uh, Thanks for downloading. You can go ahead and skip this episode and get back to our regular feed as we've got some great episodes coming up for you. We're going to be talking to some folks from Maker Studio with YouTube in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking to uh, the guys behind the app that makes this very show possible, Ringer, R-I-N-G-R. We're also going to be talking in about a week to one of the members of On The Fly Productions, a really cool performance uh, group that is going to be a big part of this season's Fake Off on True TV. All of that coming up soon. Right now, let's get into our conversation this week. It's the MCU episode as we review Netflix's Daredevil from Marvel. It's right here on Me and the Geek. So we are joined once again by Kyle Sweeney. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram and lots of other places at Kyle is Funny. And uh, when we wrap up this episode, he's got a, a current little project uh, that we want to mention and uh, make sure you get a chance to uh, back him on or, or his friends on anyway. But uh, right now, we're going to be talking about Daredevil. We wanted to break down the series overall. So we're going to warn you, if you haven't seen all of Daredevil, save this episode. Don't listen to this yet. Don't spoil yourself. It, it is well worth going and watching the series as a whole and then coming back to check in with us. We will give you our overall thoughts here in the opening before um, we, we go into spoilers. But uh, just be wary and, and don't ruin it for yourself. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. 
first of all, let's just get straight to it. Overall, spoiler free, how well did uh, Marvel and Netflix uh, do in this first outing, Daredevil? I I loved it. Again, it's I'm a Marvel fanboy, so it's hard to say that I hate anything uh, that Marvel puts out. But specifically, like felt this was such a nice series that went into sort of a different, a little bit more violent, a little bit more adult, you might say. They never would have made this Daredevil series. Uh, it would never translate to a movie the way that they've done it here on Netflix. Uh, so, you, so you get 13 episodes of uh, kind of a, a dark and gritty street level uh, hero doing what he does best. And uh, obviously it makes the Ben Affleck uh, Daredevil version sort of pale in comparison. I think people who uh, like the character will love this Netflix series. I think the people who uh, didn't like Daredevil or even the concept of him, whether it was the comic book or the Ben Affleck movie, will now love uh, this iteration of, of uh, Marvel's latest hero. Uh, I would say that overall, the series had a lot less lawyering than I imagined it was going to going into it. It had a lot more blood than I imagined it was going to have going into it. But overall, it walked a very fine line between uh, camp and um, class and action and character drama and plot development and all of those things as it laid the groundwork not only for the future of this series, but the rest of the Netflix corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it also even began to seed and hint at some things coming in the... Uh, big big boy uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, uh, the Avengers movies and the upcoming Captain America Civil War. I think there were a few seeds laid for that as well. So if you're a Marvel fan, if you're a Daredevil fan, if you're just a superhero fan or a fan of good TV, I would strongly recommend going and checking it out. 13 episodes, season one of Daredevil, it's on Netflix right now. Go put it all in your eyeballs. Season two coming uh, sometime in 2016. Now, that's our spoiler-free stuff. We're about to dive into it. So again, if you have not watched this show, stop right now. Just save this in your podcast app or uh, in your Stitcher queue or whatever and come back to us later because uh, we're about to uh, blow this thing wide open. All right. I think the best way for us to do this, Kyle, might be why don't we start with the characters and let's go with all of our main cast. Let's talk about them each individually and uh, a little bit about their storylines, what we felt overall uh they were how they accomplished it, and then we'll talk at the end about some of our favorite parts and some of our least favorite parts. A few of the things that they might have stumbled on or could do better in season two. So let's start with the cast, and you got to start right at the top. What did you think of uh, Cox, uh, Charlie Cox, in the role as Matt Murdock and Daredevil? Uh, I tell you, I loved him as uh, Matt Murdock. He he played it with the a sort of charm that you kind of come to expect from uh, a lot of Marvel's leads. Uh, where he's, he has the opportunity to be funny, but also very serious and tortured. Of course, Matt Murdock needs to be a healthy amount of tortured. Um, but yeah, he just, uh, I think he nailed it in a way that like, oh, there's this British actor, Charlie Cox, he's going to be Daredevil. I'll hold my breath until I, you know, see that. And then now seeing it, I'm like, yeah, no, I couldn't, couldn't imagine a better person cast in that role. And then as Daredevil, uh, at least in this ninja outfit, he was able to sort of be appropriately... Uh, not gravelly, but uh, to play Daredevil with that certain uh, certain menace. I, one of the most interesting parts about Charlie Cox in the role for me is as leading men go in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think he's probably the smallest. 
Um, and I mean, we'd, we'd have to line them all up, but he has a very a slight build. He's not uh, a big and bulky, uh, you know, boxer brawler sort of a, a look to him, especially like Ben Affleck presented in the 2003 film. Um, and this is a, a Matt Murdock that is unassuming, not only because he's blind, but also just again, because of his general physique. And I think in some ways they did a great job of carrying that over into his father. I've heard a lot of people complain that Jack Murdoch um, wasn't what they pictured. He's not this, you know, meat slab of a man. But if you're going to have Charlie Cox in the role as Matt, I don't think you can have that meat slab of a man in the role as uh, Jack. I, I think it was nice the, the way that they sort of mirrored each other's physicality. And while they are uh, smaller frames than some of these other superheroes that we've seen, their number one characteristic, both Matt and Jack, is how much of a beating they're able to take. And boy, does Charlie take a beating in this series. The physicality that he brings, and I know a lot of the stunts he was able to actually perform himself, um, it, it really is truly amazing. The fight choreography is another high point of this series, and so much of that uh, needs to fall at the feet of Charlie and his uh, stunt doubles and, and uh, the choreographers, of course, behind it. But just amazing, amazing fight work. And if nothing else stands out overall about this series, I think the new flavor that it brings to the action in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, you, you've heard references to The Raid or uh, a lot of Asian martial arts films, and, and I see those, but it also feels to me uh, new in some ways because of the way that they've taken those influences and combined it with the comic book influences, as well as there are many times where you do see the brawler, the boxer, come out in him. Uh, that comes from his father. All of that stuff was just a great sousant, and uh, I liked it a lot, man. Charlie Cox was was just my style of Daredevil. Right, and Daredevil as a whole, like, he had, uh, in that fight style, you say, like, it's a brutality to it that, like, you get that this guy isn't superhuman. He can see things. He's got other sorts of, like, little powers, but ultimately it's a man fighting, and fighting dirty sometimes, a bunch of uh, thugs and terrible uh, gang members and you know he just has to get through them and he doesn't have a captain america you know shield or strength to sort of kind of fight everybody in a, an honorable way like sometimes he's just breaking breaking arms and hands and legs and uh going very far into this sort of violent area just to kind of come out alive himself uh which i thought was just such an interesting uh, new approach to the MCU's heroes that we haven't really seen so much before. Uh, let's go across the aisle and, and talk about his uh, antagonist, or really, in some ways, what I think is the other protagonist of this series, Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk. They said that this was going to be a series that chronicled both the rise of Kingpin and the rise of Daredevil. And boy, they really, really paid off on that. Um, the fact that they were willing to wait three full episodes before you see him at all, and then four episodes before you really get any taste of who he is or what he's going to bring to this story, other than just the the boogeyman that is he who must not be named. You know, I mean, he's the... the I've, I heard someone reference him as the Voldemort of Hell's Kitchen. But it's such an interesting thing that he brings. He's described him as a monster and a child, and I think that's the most accurate description that I've heard. He is very vulnerable and he plays that in almost every scene, even when he's amongst his, you know, crime compatriots, even when he is unhinged and physically attacking someone, the child is still there and present. And there's a part of Wilson Fisk and a part of this Kingpin character, the whole storyline that 
I at least could connect with and found myself at times rooting for, at times sympathizing with. Um, I think specifically about the moment, and, and this is sort of getting ahead of ourselves, is one of the next characters we're going to talk about, but the moment when he sits down next to Wesley's corpse, he pulls up the chair and he sits down next to his dead best friend. That's, I felt terrible for him. And Wesley's a horrible human being, and the uh, kingpin is a horrible human being, and yet he he made him human, and therefore you do care about him in a moment like that. You know, who's played Kingpin before? You've had... Uh, Sala from Indiana Jones, right? Yeah, Sala for for the Incredible Hulk Daredevil team-up movie that happened, what, 80s, mid-80s? Michael Clark Duncan, right? Did Kingpin in... In 2003. Kingpin wasn't played with the bravado that you'd sort of expect this marquee supervillain in the Marvel Universe it was played with a lot of, he was unsure of himself, a lot of, yes, you see the, the child and uh, these explosive reactions to kind of very minor things. It makes me wonder, how did he rise to power the way he did exactly? There's still so much about uh, Wilson Fisk and him growing uh, to even become this version of Wilson Fisk, who's still pre-Kingpin, that I'm very curious about. Again, he's, he's murdered his father when his father was beating his mother, uh, he's trying to fix his city. He went away, lived on a farm. He's come back. Like there's just, it's, I don't think anyone's ever paid attention to, Oh, how'd this bad guy become this bad guy uh, with regards to Kingpin? Like you've seen it in Scarface and other things like that. I, I think you and I talked about, uh, when we did our episode on Spider-Man in the MCU, the idea that we were finally going to get another shot at a really lovable and long-term villain for the MCU in addition to Loki. He, to me, Loki is the only villain that's really stuck so far. Uh, I thought um, Pierce, uh, Alexander Pierce from The Winter Soldier brought a lot of really interesting things, and then they killed him at the end of it, you know? Uh, but other than that, you've had very forgettable villains. Now, I mean, no other character in the MCU other than Daredevil has had this opportunity where you've got so many hours of film already laid out where you get to know this person, you get to live with them, and you get to watch their rise. Now, wherever they want to take Vincent D'Onofrio as as Kingpin and Wilson Fisk, whether it is into a Spider-Man film in the future, which I think would be an excellent use of him, uh, whether it's to, what if he's the guy that's funding the Sinister Six when that comes up down the road, you know, for instance? I imagine he'll not stay in prison too long, whether it's by just amazing lawyers uh, or, or you know, breaking out or something like that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see him, and I imagine when he comes back, he'll, uh, he'll attempt to be an upstanding citizen again, whatever that means <laughs> in, this, uh, in this iteration of the Kingpin. Yeah, I do, I do imagine he will continue the charade of being a public figure and, and uh, saying you know, he's not connected to any of these nefarious dealings and... Um, it will also give us the opportunity for him to be a major driving force in civil war as he says, I'm not the bad guy. These masked vigilantes are the bad guys. You know, these people that are hiding in the shadows and doing things uh, without any uh, public approval or oversight. That's who we should be concerned about. You know, he can turn it uh, towards the, the masks, as it were. Oh, which will be it'll just be fun to see these pieces falling together. Not all of them have to like topple on top of each other, but. Uh, Again, those seeds are there, and when something makes sense for it to sort of shoot through several of the properties, it's going to be really fun to watch. So let's talk about Wesley for a minute uh, and the sidekick or the uh, second-hand man, the right-hand man, as it were, of Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin. I I really thought he was... 
one of my favorite parts of the series, as a matter of fact. Absolutely. And there's a part of him, too, where, like, he was being more calculated and kingpin-like than I felt Wilson Fisk was, which was kind of like, is he really the, the power behind the man? But, of course, that, that doesn't play out in any other way than uh, he, he gets murdered. <laughs> and then Wilson Fisk is obviously, it's probably his only friend in the world, and now he's, he's died. And even though he was a terrible, terrible human being, he was Wilson Fisk's best friend. Toby Leonard Moore is the name of the actor uh, responsible for this role. And it, you're right. He really did some amazing things. He, again, brought up a lot of questions. And I, I hope that we will see some, perhaps some kingpin flashbacks in the second season that will include uh, Wesley. So we, we do get to see a little bit more about how this relationship formed. Where did these two guys meet? And in what way was Wesley introduced to him? Um, such fascinating stuff left untold, at least for now. I do hope that we'll see some hints of that in the future. But he was an amazing addition to uh, the side of the devils uh, in this series. And when he was killed at the hands of Karen, shot uh, in the interrogation scene there as Wesley was going to kill her and she grabbed the gun, got the upper hand on him. I don't know about you. I was shocked. Did you ever expect that he was one of the ones that might not make it out? Uh, No, no. I mean, you know, he's certainly deserving of it. He was going to do the same thing to her. Netflix and then any shows that you're tending to get the opportunity or it's expected that you'll binge watch them, they have these moments at the end that are, oh, I can't stop watching now. Sometimes uh, the episode can be a little, eh, it's, it's pretty good. Some interesting things happening, but you know, neither here nor there. And then the last five minutes or even three minutes can change everything. It's a game changer. And you're sort of stuck going, all right, well... I guess I can commit another 50 minutes to the next episode at least, and then you kind of get caught in that cycle. Uh, Deborah Ann Wohl came on board as Karen Page. She was actually one of the last main cast members uh, added to the series. Of course, she's uh, famous for her role as Jessica in True Blood, and she really came straight off the set of the finale there onto the set of Daredevil, but brought some really interesting things to a character that, for fans of the comic, know there's a lot of dark turns for Karen, even... Uh, that we haven't seen so far, although there's plenty of darkness for her in this first season too. But I thought she brought a lot to the role. But overall, I liked her storyline. The one, This is one of the few nitpicks that I have with the series, though. Because of the way that they structured the season and the stories, it was inherently true that for almost the entire season, the, the audience is ahead of Karen and her compatriot, Foggy Nelson, as they're investigating and trying to put things together. We were seeing both sides, Matt's side as Daredevil, Matt's side as the lawyer, but also we were seeing Wilson Fisk and his uh, partners in crime uh, as they were putting their schemes together. Karen and Foggy were sort of left in the dark. And so at times I was um, I was almost bored with their storylines at times just because this is all information I already know. Definitely. I, I had that same feeling. You had this... Uh... I guess, you know what, A, B, and C storylines kind of going. You yeah. Were, you were ahead of where Karen Page and Foggy Nelson and at times Ben Urich were uh, in there sort of trying to make a case against this mysterious kingpin who they didn't know who it was, and then they found out it was Wilson Fisk. From the third episode, we know Wilson Fisk is the kingpin. Those characters more or less treading water in a way that's kind of like you, you need those characters around and you need to know that they're still hunting for the truth and... Uh, how do we feel about Daredevil? Uh, there was a, a lot of that that th- those three characters kind of kept bringing up and retreading 
when we're like, we know Daredevil's good, we know he's maybe being violent and stuff, but he's a force for good. So them sort of mulling that over, over and over and over again in some of the episodes made that, I'll call it the C story, kind of the weakest, uh, despite loving Ben Urich and loving uh, Eldon Henson as Foggy Nelson. I really enjoyed his sort of lovable, freewheeling. He had just such a fun energy that helped brighten up kind of some of the darker tones of, uh, you know, the, the main story, I'll say. Well, and the way that we're introduced to him, I think, was so perfect. The very first thing we hear out of his mouth after he tells Matt to get up and he asks about, you know, who he was sleeping with last night, the next thing he says is, I'm going to bribe a cop. And then Matt, Matt chides him. He says, oh, sorry, NSA. I was just kidding. Except, no, really, I'm going to bribe a cop. And then he does. He goes to meet a cop and give him some cigars for his mom. And it's a, it's a very, it's a funny interaction there. It's humorous, and I think it tells you a tremendous amount about Foggy Nelson and who he is and, and what he's going to bring to this series. I've seen a lot of negative feedback about Eldon Henson's um, performance, and I just don't get it. I think it's people being negative Nancys to be negative Nancys. If you've read any comic books, this is Foggy Nelson. He might not be as heavy as you uh, want your Foggy to be. Uh, he might not look exactly like your Foggy uh, looks in your head, but he has the right traits. He has the right attitude. He has the love for Matt, and yet the uh, unwavering um, moral compass that makes him so indignant when he finds out that Matt has been lying to him. This is a, and I've I read some great commentary on this too, the scenes in episode 10 where they finally confront each other and Foggy has learned the truth about who Matt is. He, Eldon is doing some great things there. Not only is he playing the betrayal and the concern for Matt in that he's going out and, and risking his life every night uh, in this vigilante way, that he's breaking the law, et cetera, et cetera. He also is playing the fact that his best friend knows every time he's ever lied in the last however long they've been together, 10 years, 15 years now at this point. And, and that is a very, that's an unnerving moment. But not only that, he knows when you didn't shower. He knows when you slept with someone or who you slept with. He knows if you've got a cold before you do. He knows all of the different things that can come from his senses. And, and what, a, what an alarming revelation that that would be, again, about the person that you're most intimate well, with. Well, it's weird, too. It's like, yeah, you essentially have Foggy finding out that, you know, ostensibly Matt Murdock is psychic, <laughs> Just in the way that his senses work, he's able to tell things that, you know, normal people could never know. I smelled this. I heard this. Uh, your heartbeat did this. Just these sort of very, very minor things that happen that are super revealing. And yeah, a lot of that feels like a betrayal, especially when you know have known this guy for so long and have had this quote-unquote close relationship, but not close enough to know that, oh, by the way, I'm a ninja at night and uh, I've been training and uh, there's a lot of stuff you don't know about me, my best friend, Foggy Nelson. So that obviously that's going to be uh, fundamentally changing their relationship. And even at the end of the series uh, of our 13 episodes, uh, we know that Murdoch and Nelson are connecting again, but will it be the same? There, there's got to be an undercurrent of something there we're going to be playing with in season two and probably beyond. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Matt even makes the statement, it can't be the same. 
but maybe we can move forward. And I think that's the, the best that you can hope for. But I'm, I'm glad that we're going to get to um, sort of experience that and go through it, work through it with the characters and see how that all plays out. That's very exciting to me. Um, let's go to another character you and I have actually already mentioned, Vondi Curtis Hall as Ben Urich, uh, the investigative journalist. He's a, a synonymous name with Daredevil. If you're writing the Daredevil story, you got to include Ben Urich somewhere in there. Um, a race switch of the character, generally portrayed as a white uh, Caucasian figure in the comics here, played by an African-American. But I loved Vondi uh, in the role. I thought he brought a lot of gravitas to it. Uh, I, I loved the way that they explained him sort of as the aging dog in this, you know, dying industry uh, very connected in some ways to the storyline of the first couple of seasons of House of Cards as they talk about how old, the old media companies are dying and being born anew in the new media. Um, but some surprising conclusions to his story uh, here. For a character who's alive and well and, and, and living prosperously now at the Daily Bugle and the comic books, uh, not exactly the same situation for him in the series. Uh, another one of those kind of shocker endings that they tail end of an episode, uh, I mean, we, we could say it, right? Yes. Wilson Fisk breaks into his apartment, uh, has a conversation with him. Uh, ben Yurik is indignant. It's like, you can't chase me off this story. And then he gets the life literally choked out of him by uh, Wilson Fisk. Uh, and you're just like, wait, no, this character doesn't go away. He's, he's an important piece of the fabric of the MCU. But uh, sadly, that won't be true for Ben Yurik as presented in the Netflix series. You know, it's it's interesting to me that uh, they started this episode of the dream sequence where Karen imagines that Wilson Fisk is in her apartment and that he's strangling her. And I really thought that that was going to be a foreshadowing of the retribution that Wilson would take out because of the death of Wesley. You knew there was going to be repayment, that he was going to have his pound of flesh after his best friend died. Uh, and was murdered, and he did. He just didn't get it where I thought he was going to get it. So the one little hope for the fanboy might be, oh, well, they'll bring in Ben Urich Jr., you know, to replace him. Uh, but no, that can't happen. There is no Ben Jr. There are references, specific references, to Ben never having children. Uh, doesn't seem like Ben Urich sticking around, that's for sure. Let's talk a little bit about Claire Temple, um, sort of the night nurse uh, character. They never used that uh, title, but she definitely feels like she's going to fit some of that role, um, and an interesting way to weave her in. The the fact that she's an amalgam of characters from the comics means that they can take her story in a lot of interesting directions. Um, I thought they used her less than I imagined they were going to. And there's several times where she does something. She is referenced but doesn't actually appear. Interesting way for them to save budget, first of all. But also, it's it makes me feel good about the potential for them to bring in bigger names to these Netflix series, maybe even from their regular cinematic universe, people that are generally only uh, film actors, because of the shortened um, shooting schedules that they can offer them uh, because of the, the concentrated production way that they're doing these series. Uh, and, and it's cool. Yeah, she's a pretty big name for a Netflix series. You wouldn't expect her doing TV anywhere else. But yeah, I think she was she was in less than half, I think, of the episodes, and uh, but still left this big impact. Technically, I think in the series, uh, Matt Murdock's first love interest that we've seen. Uh, there have been conquests in the past, even in the allusion to a Greek girl from college. But uh, the first time that we see him sort of connecting and then at the same time uh, distancing uh, from a woman in the show and. I'm, I'm glad that it was limited to the amount of time it was. 
and we were able to sort of, you know, not be teasing a will they, won't they for a full season or even just a full 13 episodes. So yeah, she was fun, obviously, to see in that role and, and brought a certain level of uh, like, oh, I believe she's so be willing to take take on a, uh, you know, a bloodied man in the alley and bring him into her apartment and help stitch him back up. A great second episode, by the way. Yeah, it was. It was. And, and also, uh, how daring that they skip the fight that predates that patch up. There's a, a big fight there that we miss where Daredevil is ambushed and beaten within an inch of his life. He escapes barely and then is found in the dumpster by Claire. We don't get to see that fight. Of course, it's made up for by the amazing end of uh, episode two fight in the hallway, the one shot uh, fight that's sort of reminiscent of old boy, but um, interesting uh, ideas and interesting story construction, even from the beginning. So, so you've got a, quite a collection uh, surrounding Wilson Fisk and adding to the potential problems for Matt Murdock and, and friends. Uh, and that starts with Leland Owsley. I would say uh, he is the accountant for this collection of nefarious uh, doers, a criminal syndicate as it were. <laughs> yeah. And uh, of course we know him from, the comics as the owl and now uh, he ends this series at the bottom of an elevator shaft so i don't imagine that uh, we're going to see him in costume but unlike ben urich leland owsley does have a son <laughs> <laughs> we'll see him i'm sure he's got a pepper in somehow i think that we it is very likely down the road that we could see um a leland owsley jr or some other variation of that name in costume as the owl um you are already referenced the queen of this uh, crime syndicate or the future queen, Vanessa Mariana, uh, played by Alet Zurer. She was um, Superman's mother. And now here she is as a Kingpin's paramour uh, and an art gallery employee. She can be very easily explained as sort of the Lady Macbeth of the situation, but she's not necessarily, I guess, promoting Wilson Fisk's behavior as much as, yeah, probably enabling it in a, uh, like, you have to protect yourself, you have to believe in yourself sort of way. Uh, then you've got your two Russian brothers, Vladimir and Anatoly, uh, the two uh, Russian brothers, uh, and they really form the entry to the world of crime. We get a glimpse at everyone and the, the whole gauntlet that Daredevil's going to have to run through at the end of the first episode, but for the first several, four or five episodes, we really only focus uh, directly on him fighting the Russians. And I think that's a great choice by uh, the producers in that we ease you into the world. Hey, if you if you don't like superheroes, but you like crime shows, guess what this is? It's a crime show. And uh, it warms you up to the more fantastic elements that you eventually get to. Um, I loved the Russians. I thought both of them did a good job. I like the glimpses we get of their former life and what brought them to New York. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because we, uh, as Americans, we hate Russians. What do we hate more than Russians? Russian mafia. <laughs> Indeed. They can be, they're sort of our Nazis that we don't care how many of their Russian gang is getting beat up and broken by Daredevil. It's just like, yeah, bring them on. More, 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 more. Great. And then you, you have Daredevil climb the ladder sort of out from the Russians onto part of the, I guess, the Japanese and Chinese elements of uh, this, this syndicate, which is, it's fun to see him sort of essentially evolve and climb up that ladder to eventually get to Wilson Fisk. Uh, and as you mentioned, the Japanese element in the form of Nobu uh, and his business uh, syndicate, his partners, we get a hint of the uh, people that he is answering to and then we see him in full costume as a red ninja. Now, the name of his group is never said, but I think you and I both know, and anybody who's read the comics knows, 
this guy is a member of, if not one of the leaders of, the Hand. Right. There was this moment when, in that sort of end of the first episode montage, where they're going through everything, and you see the sort of square block that Nobu is, is after for his, for his people, and he places his hand down on it. Is that our subtle but very overt way of nodding that he is a part of the Hand uh, Ninja Clan? I think so. And then the the one member that uh, really walks away from this series unscathed as far as the criminal element goes is Madame Gao. Uh, and we don't know a whole lot about Madame Gao. We only spend a little time with her in the series, but she's one of the most fascinating characters. Um, Wai Ching Ho, the name of the actress uh, responsible for this one, um, she says, and it's one of my favorite lines in the whole series, she says to Wilson Fisk, he asks, how many languages do you speak? And she says, all of them. And you, be- and you believe her when she says it, too. Uh, she handles Matt with just one single punch, uh, one palm fist, you know. And, and she's, an old, she's an older woman, but you get a sense that there is sort of a mystical element to her. Uh, maybe a little iron fist tie-in. I don't, want, I don't know, maybe something. Absolutely. But, yeah, just, a, just a, a weird, powerful woman who then more or less evaporates at the end of the series by going back to her homeland to sort of uh, figure things out and plan her next steps. Her home, which is much farther away than China, as she tells Leland Owsley. Um, I, think, I think there's no doubt to me that this is a uh, reference to the Iron Fist mythology. I think it's very likely that she is, if not from Kunlun herself, the home of, of uh, Iron Fist's power. Uh, if she's not from there, she's from one of the other um, capital cities of heaven. And I think that she will figure very much into the war that's referenced in episode seven between uh, the character of Stick and the unnamed man that we see, that if you read the comics, it's pretty clear that guy is named Stone, a student of of Stick's, another uh, warrior in this group. They're generally identified as the Chaste, which is a, another clan that fights the hand throughout time. And all of that stuff, to me, sets up for an amazing opening for not only season two of Daredevil, but I think much more likely where we go with Iron Fist and then eventually with the Defenders. I think this is the storyline that will carry and unite all of these Netflix series together um, in that miniseries. The one character that we didn't mention um, is Stick and Scott Glenn as Stick. Just one episode. I was really expecting more from him in this season. I think it's guaranteed we'll see him more in the future, but I thought the, the portrayal was very good. I thought Glenn did an excellent job in it, and I thought he brought a lot of humor and uh, well, just an original take on um, this sort of mentor character that we've seen so many times in, in superhero movies. Well, and he's like teased and he presents an entirely new facet or mystery that uh, has yet to reveal itself. It never has to, but I'm sure we'll get into it <laughs> in future installments. Uh, it's weird. The, the Hell's Kitchen and the Netflix Daredevil universe, which will spread to the Netflix, we'll call it the Defenders universe, in a matter of speaking, it feels big. It feels kind of, in a weird way, bigger than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. while being a little bit more contained and a little bit more focused. Um, there's, something, there's something to that in the approach that they took that I'm, a, I'm definitely a huge fan of. Thank goodness for Drew Goddard. Indeed, indeed. Uh, all right, so let's go to a couple of our favorite moments. Why don't you give me two or three of your uh, top moments from the show? Uh, it's weird to me, but the biggest and most standout moment for me is still... Uh, we get through the entire premiere episode, and Karen Page is free, and uh, the good guys have won. And we see this montage of him punching a punching bag, 
and we see how terrible the odds are stacked against the good guy. Uh, you see every aspect of that criminal syndicate doing something. Uh, we're taking care of all our loose ends, all the people. Uh, the assassin gets taken out kind of thing. You're seeing more, more drugs being made. A punch, another punch on the punching bag. And you can see the anger sort of coming off of Matt Murdock as he's just in the gym training uh, while the rest of the criminal world continues on almost as if this was this, just a small blip that popped up for them. And it just, it fueled me to like, and I think I watched four, no, I watched maybe six episodes the first night, just kind of continually sort of pumped up by that. Um, that was like, yeah, just that key moment to me that was like, I'm hooked. I'm not turning this off anytime soon. One of my favorite things about the series, and it's referenced a couple of times, but it's, um, I think it comes out in the very first episode when Matt and Foggy are going to look at the office for the first time. This whole series is done in the shadow of the alien attack in the Avengers. There's this alien evasion by the Chitari. Uh, much of New York City is damaged by both the aliens and the uh, Incredible Hulk and the rest of the Avengers as they fight those aliens. And then we don't really see the rebuild. We don't see any of the aftermath in any of the films, really. We, we get references to the incident in New York or the Battle of New York City, but we don't see anything on boots on the ground until this. And here we're shown that Hell's Kitchen has now been returned to this gritty, dark, uh, scary corner of New York City because of the damage done from the alien invasion. I thought that was a wonderful way to tie the two together. And it's a great story cheat to explain why your version of Hell's Kitchen is so much darker than it actually is. And why do we need all of these vigilantes running around when this is where all the hipsters live in, in the real world? Right. I love that it was able to reset. It's like, okay, so this is now 70s-ish New York's Hell, Hell's Kitchen. And that, uh, yeah, obviously, oh, that makes so much sense that, yeah, half the buildings might have been destroyed in Hell's Kitchen. And Wilson Fisk is trying to rebuild it, and uh, but obviously not using the best of means. Uh, I, the other, my other favorite part in the series, I got to tell you, was the fact that they did kill Ben Urich. I hate to see that character go, but it shows me for the first time Marvel uh, being willing to really make death count in their cinematic universe. There's been so many characters. Um, you know, we've seen Loki die a couple of times and come back. We've seen. Uh, well, you know, Red Skull disappeared. We believe he's going to come back. Coulson, the, the biggest one, yes, obviously, as he returned on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But so many times we've seen, well, even Nick Fury, quote-unquote, cheated death in The Winter Soldier. Death has to matter, and it has to exist, at least for some characters, sometimes, for there to be any stakes when you're having these big battles. Occasionally, you have to kill somebody and let it be final. And that seems to be what they've done here with Ben Urich. It was a shocking death. It was uh, something different and unexpected, and it shows that they're going to be bold in their storytelling. And it, it really set me on fire for the potential for the future of this series and the, and the rest of them. So I, I've mentioned a couple of flaws that I, I found in the series. That Overall, I think my one problem with it is maybe we had a couple of extra episodes than we needed. This could probably have done well as a, a 10-episode series. Yeah, I think uh, I, I felt, too, like if you were going to get aggressive, and I think we kind of said the same thing about Agent Carter. I was like, you could do this eight episodes and maybe even five, and it would have just uh, really have uh, sung. But, um, yeah, ultimately with, with this one, I'm like, yeah, if you cut the uh, the order in half or even if you just did a solid eight miniseries, I think it would have tightened the narrative. We probably wouldn't have had so much of the lingering uh, 
investigative journalism slash lawyering uh, C plot line that kind of hovered in there and, and filled in some gaps maybe longer than it should have. I think that would have fitted a little bit better. There were moments that felt padded out or stretched more than they needed to be. But overall, I'm not going to argue. It was an incredibly enjoyable 13 hours. And um, overall, I got way more positives than nitpicks. Yeah, I'm not going to complain that I got 13 episodes of Daredevil. Uh, I'll just note that, yeah, you could have cut that down, but you didn't need to. I'm perfectly content. So we have a season two order now, less than 11 days after the premiere, uh, Marvel and Netflix have agreed and announced uh, that uh, Daredevil, Daredevil will be back for season two sometime in 2016. I think we've got a lot of seeds to discuss for season two. Um, I'll give you a couple of the big ones that I want to see answered. I want to see the continued uh, involvement of Melvin Potter. We saw him uh, make the suit for Daredevil to end season one. He's, of course, responsible for Kingpin's fancy suits that are, are knife-proof uh, that we see throughout the season. And we also see some hints in his workshop of both the Stiltman costume, uh, which was very exciting. We see hints to the Gladiator costume that Melvin wore himself in the comics with the saw blades. Uh, and then, of course, I also think he'll be integral in the continued evolution of Daredevil's costume. I don't think the costume we see at the end of season one, I don't think that'll even be the costume we see when season two begins. I think it'll already be evolved some. And I think throughout season two, it's likely that it'll change as well. I'm curious, I'm curious how you felt about how that costume, uh, not only the Black Ninja outfit uh, that we had through most of the season, but the reveal of the red costume for the first time in a dark alley. And of course I talked about this a little bit more. You can find, uh, I've got a YouTube series, uh, on the me and the geek page. You can find that channel and uh, get episode by episode breakdowns. I've, I've got little mini reviews. I talk about the costume there, but I loved the black ninja costume. I thought it really fit the universe. It makes a lot of sense to who Matt is at the beginning of this series and what he's trying to do. I kind of would have been happy if they just kept the ninja suit for practicality purposes. Uh, but I do love that we got to work in sort of a, a red and black uh, suit that is paying homage to the uh, uh, costume that we have in the comic. And then the way that they earned the red costume, um, I really love that as well. The design's not perfect, but I had much less of a problem with that than uh, some people online. If you look at it straight on, his nose is very wide. There's, there's odd things to it, but overall, I think it's fine and it makes sense in the world. Um, and the other thing is that you don't see it still very often when you're actually watching this, the show. You know, Daredevil is a, a man in motion. Yeah, I think it's whenever he's standing still and you're just like, here's the hero shot of Daredevil in the red suit. That's the part that doesn't play for me. I don't know that Daredevil would stand up there like, kind of like that. Or lights catching the little eye parts in the cowl just in a way that makes me go, this feels awkward. Just put on your black half bandana mask. I did love the devil horns on it, though. I think that that's the one part that really, really played on the cow, uh, which is where I see a lot of the my problems with like, oh, well, you have this helmet on now, more or less, uh, and you want it to like look realistic. So uh, being used to that little black bandana and moving to this this cow was was a bit of a shift for me, but it was a good fight with the kingpin. So I was willing to just enjoy the moment. But now afterwards, talk about it way too much and be a little upset that it wasn't better. They, they really earned it. Uh, the discussions, the need, they showed us the need for body armor. They talked to us about the need for body armor. They showed us a potential place where they could serve it up. And then they gave it to us in a, a fitting way at the end, just as he's getting his name from the media as well. Um, but 
I also don't think that it's a final version. Um, and it'll make sense because little story points, like going back to visit Melvin and asking, hey, can we change this? Can we add this? Can we fix this because of this thing that happened to me in a fight? One of the things for season two, and again, season one touched on this literally for maybe one episode of Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson in court defending a criminal. When I heard the series pitched to begin with, oh, we're getting a Daredevil Netflix series, a TV show about him. I was like, the natural thing to me was they're going to lean on the law procedural aspect. And I think there's an interesting show that is examining a little bit more the dichotomy between here's the vigilante. And then during the day, he's defending the little people and taking on the cases that that mean something to him and his community. Um, that potentially I'd like to see in season two, the format sort of shift a little bit so that you might have, instead of that weak, weaker C storyline, they're working a case that sort of matters and that is a piece of the puzzle. It has something to it, some meat there that kind of plays up the, the interesting nature of Matt Murdock being a lawyer and him having a law firm and him having to take care of other people within the eyes of the law as well as his vigilante activity, which I think we're all pretty happy with. The one other storyline I think that we've definitely got to at least get more of, maybe we won't get it fully unpacked, but I believe we'll have to see Electra in season two. She was referenced, as you mentioned earlier in one episode, I think that she's probably already been training with Matt. I think Matt knows something about her past and, and her preoccupations with uh, ninjas and uh, bladed weapons, and I think we're going to see some of that in season two. Right, and rather than even like the sort of like, oh, we have to do an Electra origin story. I don't think that's there at all. I think if we see her, she's already a ninja. There's already this past between uh, her and Matt, and you're able to sort of hit the ground running, uh, having the people who don't know playing a little bit of catch up, and the people who do know glad that you're not spending a whole episode or two to sort of introduce the fact that, oh, this Greek woman is also uh, an assassin or, you know, whatever iteration that she's going to take, I guess, in the show. Um, you also got to look out for Bullseye. I think they even mentioned that in one of the uh, articles I was reading about somebody they'd like to bring in season two. Certainly the, uh, one of the counterpoints you have to uh, Daredevil is Bullseye, a very similar costume and an expert marksman and, you know, a sociopath. So that'll be fun to watch. Well, and, and there's a rumor that there's even a, an Easter egg that we may have seen him in this season as there's the, the sniper that takes out the police officers uh, trying to take out Ben Urich at one point. Uh, when he opens up his case to put his weapon together, there's a playing card there, which is, of course, something that you occasionally see Bullseye use. So that might have been a reference already uh, to the man behind that mask. And I love the idea of him being sort of an MCU'd version. Like, he doesn't have to be a goofy costume guy. He could just be like, I'm an assassin, and an assassin probably wouldn't wear a flamboyant spandex outfit. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, the, the only other thing that I would perhaps see uh, a, a, a need to bring into the Daredevil series specifically would be the idea of the Punisher. I'd like to see him get an entire season uh, of his own on Netflix, at least. Uh, but I think you could very easily start it by making him a daredevil villain uh, first. And the, the, the difference in opinion of those two men and the difference of tactic uh, for those two men as they try to make their city and their world a better place, I think could be a very interesting plot point and ongoing discussion in this series. And you love to see bad guys get theirs and Punisher does that kind of in that sort of action hero 80s way that nobody else does. 
the man on a mission, no longer bound by normal morality, his anti-hero nature of like, I'm going to take out the bad guys by any means necessary. I think that would translate really well to the universe uh, that Netflix is sort of set up with us for Marvel's darker side of, of the wonderful uh, multi-billion dollar coin. Man, I got to tell you, 13 hours of Daredevil available on Netflix now. Uh, I think you and I could probably talk about it for 13 hours, too. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and try to wrap this discussion up? We'll be back uh, soon again with another MCU episode of Me and the Geek, as Kyle and I are going to be reviewing probably in just a week or two, uh, The Avengers Age of Ultron, the new big screen entry. And then a few weeks after that, we'll be taking a look at season two of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as it comes to a close as well. So there's lots of interesting stuff. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, Kyle, before we we get you out of here, uh, I I mentioned uh, you got a a cool project going on. We want to make sure people have an opportunity to back you there. You got some uh, comedy videos coming up. People can check that out at hundonug.com, right? Right. There's uh, uh, doing a little comedy project, getting a Kickstarter campaign together for an ultimate vlog slash web series, which, which will be starring Danny Roberts, a.k.a. me as a character who thinks it's a good idea to make a web series specifically about eating 100 chicken nuggets, not all at one time, mind you, that would be silly, to eat one chicken nugget per episode for 100 days. Uh, that, that's what he thinks people are interested in. But yeah, doing a Kickstarter right now, the goal was $100. We blew past that. We're now uh, like 1500 ish So we just, the more money we get, there's some epic stretch goals. But again, it's really just a lot of fun. So if you want to check it out, I have some uh, fun purposely poorly made videos that are uh, updates throughout the campaign on that. But you can get there by visiting hundonug.com as well as now thundonug.com, which I don't know if we hit that stretch goal, it'd be a thousand nuggets in a thousand days on a thousand different episodes. That's insanity, sir. That's insanity. You got to go there. You got to go there because people are willing to see you do stuff on the internet. And that's what it's there for. We, uh, we will have links in the show notes where you can check that out, too. And uh, we'll have Kyle back on again soon to talk uh, in our next MCU episode. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kyle. No problem, man. Thank you for having me. A great conversation, as always, with Kyle Sweeney. And don't forget to check out him on Twitter at KyleIsFunny and also uh, Hundonug.com or Thundonug.com to check out those uh, comedy video projects that he's working on right now. Uh, Next week on Me and the Geek, we've got a great conversation coming up with Jake Gwynn. He is a member of the On the Fly Productions, and he's going to be on... Season two of The Fake Out on True TV. And we'll have uh, all about how that uh, came together for him and his performance group as well, and what you can expect from this season's shows. And that's going to be available on Thursday, May 7th. So stay tuned to me and the geek pod.com. Until next time, I'm me, Joel Sharpton. You can follow me on Twitter at The Rogue's Life. This week's geek was Kyle Sweeney, and this was the podcast. One, two, three. Me and the Geek is a proud member of the Procast Network, a Procreate production. Procreate is a community of artists in film, music, the digital arts, and fine arts that helps them connect and collaborate on projects. You can find out more at teamprocreate.com. Also, be sure to check out one of our other great shows like Pod on Pod, a weekly review of a different podcast to help you find your new favorite show. Josh and Joel are your hosts as they walk through the wide world of podcasting from comedy to self-help. Josh and Joel listen to it all so you don't have to. Hey. 
With Rapid Insurance on Vodafone Business, we'll get a replacement phone to you within four hours. So if you should... Oh, no. Or even... Just get in touch and we'll... Your replacement phone, sir. Your phone replaced within four hours with our Rapid Insurance. Available on our new and limited data plans. The future is exciting. Ready? Vodafone Business. Max download upload speeds apply to data. Coverage may vary. Unlimited and rapid terms at vodafone.co.uk slash terms. Welcome on board, ladies and gentlemen. Could the passenger in carriage five please unplug your extension lead and stop charging your phone, electric toothbrush, handheld hoover and power drill on the table. Thank you. Like getting your money's worth? Enjoy the delicious mayo chicken. Just 99p from the McDonald's saver menu. <laughs> Served after 10.30am, except in selected restaurants, which will serve this from 11am. Price and participation may vary.